Welcome to episode 11 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. On December 21st, 1944, the people of the city of Budapest were getting ready for Christmas, but the spirit of Christmas was not in the air, or in the heart of the people, like it used to be before the war. Some people were looking for Christmas trees, others for presents. Either of them was very hard to find. Those parts of Hungary from where the Christmas trees used to be shipped to all over the country were under communist occupation, and it was impossible to get any trees shipped from those provinces. The stores were almost empty, and the gift selection was very limited. You could buy only homemade and handmade toys, and those things were very primitive. The handmade dolls were clumsy and ugly, but no matter what was on the shelves, people were buying everything that was available. I guess people did not want to give up on the ancient custom of giving and loving for Christmas. I remember back when some of my Jewish classmates and friends used to put up decorative, a decorative pine tree at Christmas time, not because they believed in Jesus' birth, but because their sons or daughters, Christian friends, had trees and presents at Christmas time. Over the decades, many of the Jewish families were accustomed to the Christmas spirit, just like the Christian families. This year's Christmas was different for the Jewish families, too. Being in the ghetto, they worried about how they can keep their home warm enough in the cold weather when they did not have enough money to pay the gas bill. How do you tell your kids that you have no more food when they cry because they are hungry? Even if you had money, there was no food in the stores, or you could not leave the ghetto for days. Did you ever have to tell your hungry children that we don't have any food today, maybe tomorrow? And the biggest threat of all, that you did not know whether you would live until tomorrow or not. The 1944 Christmas was different for everybody, Jews or non-Jews. The communist forces almost encircled the capital, and on the cold, quiet winter nights, you could hear the explosions and the barking of machine guns. People had different feelings and different wishes for Christmas. The Jewish population in the ghettos and protected houses were hoping and praying that the Red Army will take the city tomorrow. From their viewpoint, it meant liberation and life for them. The rest and the majority of the people were praying for a miracle that something could stop the communists from invading the city. Communism meant slavery and terror for those who did not believe in Lenin's ideology. Since the Red Army was so close and all around the capital, some of the Nazi Aerocross gangs slowed down their savage atrocities. Some of them threw away their uniforms and weapons, tried to hide, or moved to the other side of the city, hoping that nobody would recognize them after the Red Army took over the city. But the majority of them did not change at all. They even increased their brutal atrocities, knowing that their days are numbered. Early on December 22, 1944, a large Aerocross gang rounded up about 50 Jews from the protected houses on Ishtin Hagi, forced them onto trucks, and drove them to the brick factory in Obuda. When they arrived, they robbed some of them of everything they had. Their protective documents were taken away, too. The Nazis told them where they were going. They will not need any of these things. They were brutally beaten and taken to the bank of the Danube River. The Nazis took all their clothes and threw them one by one into the cold water alive. Then they started target shooting those who did not drown right away. The same evening, a gang of Aerocross youths entered one of the very few coffee house restaurants which was open during the evening hours in the heart of the capital. The Nazis forced the five-member gypsy orchestra 
which was playing during the dinner dining hours, to leave the place and marched them down the street to the bank of the river. It was a dark and cold December night, and nobody followed them to find out what happened to the, those gypsies. Later on, from an eyewitness report, we found the Nazis threw them into the icy water of the Danube River. Nobody saw them again. The protected houses were under surveillance of the shadows, but since they were outnumbered sometimes by the Nazis, they could not do anything. Later on in the evening, we got the message on the phone the minute they took the Jews to the brick factory. We knew right away what the Nazi Aerocross gang would do because they did it a few times before in the past. We drove the ambulance to the northeast edge of Market and tried to spot the bodies in the water, Market Island. The island splits the river and the current shifts everything to the eastern part of the river. Since the flow of the water slows down, it is easy to spot any object floating on top of the water. We managed to fish out nine persons from the ice cold water. All of them were young and good swimmers. We warmed them up with hot drinks and blankets and took them to one of our special houses occupied by the new Christians with new documents. After they were able to talk, they told us the whole story. After they were beaten in the brick factory, the Nazis drove them out to the bank of the river where they were stripped down and thrown into the water alive. The Nazis did not take their shoes away because they knew it would be hard to swim with shoes on. The nine young men we saved had jumped into the water voluntarily, hoping that they will be able to swim to the opposite shore. They told us the Nazis tried to kill them while they, while they were in the water. Some of these gang members were convicted and executed after the war. On December 23rd, a Nazi SS captain, Karl Holtz, approached Prime Minister Ferenc Zelazy with Adolf Eichmann's suggestion on how to liquidate the rest of the Jewish population in Budapest. The final solution was Eichmann's goal ever since Hungary became the satellite of the Third Reich. Adolf Eichmann did not like Prime Minister Zelazy at all. Before the October 15th takeover and the occupation of Hungary, Eichmann wanted Hitler to put Hungary under 100% German military rule, and he wanted to be the ruler. Hitler turned down Eichmann and put Zelazy in charge of the country. Eichmann never could forget that and always tried to make him look bad in his reports to his beloved Fuhrer. Adolf Eichmann knew that Germany lost the war and it would be only a very short time. When he suggested liquidating the remaining Jewish population of Budapest, he was hoping to kill two birds with one stone. If Prime Minister Zelazy would agree to kill 5,000 Jews a day and cremate them in the brick factory, Eichmann would finally get his wish come true, the liquidation of the Jewish population in Budapest and Zelazy, by accepting Eichmann's suggestion, would become a mass murderer in the eyes of Western powers. Zelazy was a fanatic anti-Semite, but he turned down Eichmann's suggestion because he did not want to be accountable for the brutal massacre of over 120,000 Jews. Although he hated the Jews, the savage, senseless killing did not agree with him. Saving the Jews in Budapest did not help him after the war. The next section is titled The Endless Killings on the Streets of Budapest. Before the Austrian Anschluss, Hungary started to snap out of the Depression, which hit every European nation until the late 1930s. The economy was on its way to a full recovery. Commercial and industrial output was increasing rapidly. Exports to several European countries were on the rise. 
The living standard and everything in the entire country was getting better and better. The Jewish industrialists, bankers, apartment house owners, etc., played a big role in the recovery of the country. The tourist industry showed the biggest upswing. People from the United States, the Far and Middle East, and all over the whole world started to visit Hungary. Because the country had so many different and unique things to offer, it was the number one place to see on the traveling people's list. After Hitler and the Nazis gang took over Austria and started the limitations, and later on wanted the 100% liquidation of the Jews, and decided to control or take over Hungary, the tourist industry started to decline rapidly. The wealthy visitors, including the Jewish tourists, started to stay away from Hungary. First because they feared that their lives might be in danger, second because they wanted to boycott the Third Reich and the other countries associated with Germany. By the end of the 1930s, none of the countries under German occupation or countries sympathizing with Hitler's ideology was safe for the Jews. Hitler wanted all the exports from Hungary to be secured for the Third Reich. He did not intend to pay for it. But later on, when his power over the European countries was increasing, he agreed to make territorial revisions in favor of Hungary. That was one of the reasons why the Hungarian regent von Horthy agreed to side with Germany. The other and most important fa factor why Hungary allied with Germany was that in case of resisting Hitler's demands would lead to an immediate military takeover in Hungary. It took two weeks for Hitler to take over Poland, which has four times the population of Hungary. Hitler knew that the Hungarian military would not last more than a week before they surrender. The Hungarian regent von Horthy knew the facts too. That was the reason he had to find some peaceful solution. Those territorial gains were only temporary because after the war, Hungary was robbed again, just like after the First World War. Because of Hitler's stupid satanic calculation, Hungary lost almost a million of her population and the territories that belonged to her for over a thousand years. But the big Western powers like the United States, England, France, and Russia did not care about justice. They did not have any knowledge of history. They just wanted to satisfy their own decision. In December, Hungary, once a beautiful little country, was on the way to complete destruction as a nation. The majority of the population was afraid of the inescapable future communist rule, but a small fraction of the people were still committing the biggest crime of the century. On December 24, 1944, on the Holy Night, some of the mindless members of the Hungarian Nazi Aerocross Party were roaming the streets in Budapest. At midnight, we received an urgent message from one of our agents. He called for immediate help because one of the yellow-starred houses on Nepzinhaz Street was being attacked by a few men in civilian clothes with the Nazi armband on their coats. They were terrorizing the Jews. Being in uniform, six of us jumped into the ambulance and were racing towards Nebzinhaus Street. When we got there, we saw two young Nazi punks armed with rifles and pistols beating on a dozen Jews. We were armed too, so I asked for the authorization paper or order to harm the Jews. They were really surprised but had to admit they didn't have the right to do what they were doing. We took their firearms and sent them home. We did not have the authority to arrest them and the police would let them go anyway. On the same day, after midnight, we got another call from an eyewitness Christian 
who said the Aerocross gang was killing Jews in the Dobbs Street ghetto. We did not believe it, but the caller said that the Jews are lying on the street in blood, and they look dead. This time we took the ambulances, all of us were armed, and rushed to the scene. When we got there, we saw about two dozen Jews, some of them lying on the ground, others kneeling on the street. A half dozen Aerocross Nazi youths were brutally beating them. When we got closer, they stopped beating, and a couple of them came toward us. We were armed too, and outnumbered and outranked them. When we got close enough, I asked them where the person who was supposed to be taken to the hospital was. One of them, talking very arrogantly, said, there is nobody injured, and no one needed to be hospitalized. When I asked him why the one on the ground was bleeding, he said, that is none of my business. I guessed the tone of his voice, and seeing the people bleeding on the snow-covered ground made us draw our guns and force them to put their weapons down. We confiscated their weapons and took all their identification papers away and chased them blocks away. That was one occasion when we used force without casualty to save someone's life. The next day we found out from our cover-up agent that those punks in the, in the Dobbs Street ghetto were not members of the Nazi Aerocross party. They just wanted to try something on their own. They were looking for jewelry or anything valuable they can rob from the helpless Jews. The next day, on Christmas Day, the majority of the people in Budapest moved to the air raid shelters. Due to the frequent air raids by the communist forces, the military authorities issued a temporary order for the entire population of the capital to stay in the shelters until further notice. Exempt were only those food store employees and those injured persons in the hospitals whose transfer would be fatal. The Gestapo and the Aerocross gangs were patrolling the streets and anybody who did not obey the order was arrested. The houses in the ghetto did not have any improved shelter. Most of them had just a common basement, no bathroom, or any emergency medical supply or service. Every building had a sky watcher on the roof. This person was a lookout for enemy warplanes. He was watching not only for approaching planes, but for people who did not go into the shelters. In case he spotted somebody, the report went to the closest patrol unit and the person was arrested and jailed. If he was a Jew, he was jailed and the next day he was taken to the deportation camp and deported in a few days. While the people were confined to the air raid shelters, the Aerocross patrol units and the Gestapo were raiding houses inside the ghetto and all over the capital. If they found anything valuable, they just robbed the place. Many people were surprised when the air raid was over and going back to their apartments found that half of their belongings were gone. The same day a gang of Aerocross patrol and Gestapo gangs entered the St. Francis Church and Franciscan Order on Margaret Circle Road in Buda. They held the monks at gunpoint while searching for hidden Jews. After they left, the monks and priests went to the church and found most of the valuable gold and silver pieces were missing from the altar. We'll never find out who robbed that church, the Aerocross gang, the Gestapo, or if it was a joint maneuver. The next day, December 26th, our attention was called to the brick factory in Obuda. Racing from the other side of the city, we arrived almost too late. When we arrived at the brick factory, we were confronted with a half dozen Aerocross youths. That time they were in uniform, with a young sergeant in charge. We used the same trick again, asking who are, in who are the injured. 
We had no business being there, but they did not know that. The sergeant, in a very military manner, gave us the report, a long story of how they were attacked by the Jews, and in self-defense they shot two of them. We examined the two men laying on the ground in blood, but there was nothing we could do for them. Both were dead. Since we had higher ranks, we ordered them to make a report to their headquarters and leave. We called the Red Cross to take care of the dead ones and took the other ten Jews back to their place from where they were taken. On the way, they told us what really happened. They were taken to the brick factory on a truck by those Aerocross youths. Without any reason, they started to beat them with whips, and when they started to complain and resist, the Aerocross kids shot two of them, threatening all of them that they will be killed. If we would have not shown up in time, all of them would have been killed and thrown into the Danube River. Ever since the October 15, 1944 German takeover and Ferenc Zelazy as ruler of the country, the Nazi Aerocross gangs were invading not just the houses on, in the ghettos, but any of the non-Jewish residents in the city. They had absolute power from the party headquarters, authorities, and nobody in the civil status could object to whatever they decided to do. But they had to obey and take orders from higher military ranks. They patrolled the city streets 24 hours a day. They invaded private and apartment houses because they were searching for hidden Jews. In case they found one in your house, they had the opportunity to shoot you on the spot. They did not fill out a report and left the bodies where they were shot. When the Gestapo was established after Ferenc Zelazy came to power, the city built a wall encircling the entire ghetto. All the entrances and exits were guarded by Aerocross members. These people, young or old, did not become Nazis because they wanted to help their country or do good for any others. They just wanted to gain power over the rest of the people. They were a bunch of senseless, savage bastards who didn't have any feeling even for their own mothers. But when the time arrived to stand up and fight like men, they were running and hiding like rats wanting to save their lives after they took the lives of so many innocent people. On the same day, December 26, we received a call from an eyewitness from a nearby house that the guards at the ghetto entrance, Kafsa Street, a.k.a. CZFA, lined up a bunch of young Jewish women and started to disrobe them. The temperature was down to zero centigrade, and a warm winter coat was the proper dressing. We called Raoul Wellenberg, who promised to hurry to the scene, and we jumped into the ambulance too. By the time we arrived, we saw Wallenberg arguing with the Nazis, but the women still didn't have their overcoats on. Wallenberg had the Swedish flag on his car and was showing his credentials, but the Nazis told him to go back to his protected house. We were armed and outranked them. We told the corporal in charge to call his commanding officer on the phone because we wanted to talk to him. He didn't like the idea, but he had to obey the order. Lieutenant Paul Kiss was in charge of the guard units and didn't like the complaining either, but he didn't want his higher-ups to hear about it, so he told the guard to put a stop to it and don't let it happen again. One member of the guards called Wallenberg all kinds of dirty names, figuring that he'll not understand it anyway, but Wallenberg understood every word they were telling him. He did remain silent, and after a while, when the women returned to their place, we all left. After a couple hours, we drove by again, but everything was calm. Meanwhile, the communist army was tightening the ring around the capital. They were going to encircle the city so that no one could go in or out of the capital. 
Some of the Nazi Aircross party members and many of Ferencz-Lazy's lieutenants left the city already and were heading toward the Austrian border, hoping they can escape the punishment for their crimes of in murdering innocent people. I never learned after the war ended how many of those brutal murderers were convicted or how many of them managed to escape. But the majority of the Nazis were staying in the capital and continued to torture and murder innocent people. Shortly after Christmas on December 27th, a bunch of Aerocross youths in uniform and heavily armed entered one of Raul Wallenberg's protected buildings. They rounded up about 20 Jews and marched them to the middle of the Elizabeth Bridge. Then they tried to force them to jump into the river. Those who refused to jump were thrown into the ice-cold water. The water temperature was just above freezing and most of the Jews didn't know how to swim. Besides, with overcoat and shoes on, they had a very slim chance, even if one of them was a good swimmer. They all drowned and their bodies were washed ashore a couple miles down the river. Raul Wallenberg was strongly protesting to the Hungarian authorities for the brutal behavior of the Hungarian Nazi Aerocross Party members. He promised a strict and immediate investigation. Two days later, he was notified that after investigating his complaint, the police department could not find any proof or witness that the crime he was complaining about ever happened. When he showed me that paper, we knew there was no way that the brutal savage killings could be stopped. We had only one chance left, to do something about the Aerocross terror. Some of the high-ranking officers in most of the military headquarters were not poisoned by the Nazi ideology. Maybe some of them would help us to curb the Aerocross gangs on some occasions without any conflict with the present laws. We knew one colonel in the Uloi Road military headquarters and one general who was the head of the military court on Margit Circle Road in Buda. Both officers were willing to help in case of an emergency. Because the breakthrough of the Red Army was expected to happen any day, we had an emergency meeting with Raul Wallenberg, one of the highest Catholic clergy and a member of the Swiss consulate. The subject of the meeting was the never-changing fact of how to stop or lessen the Nazi Aerocross brutality and killing. We knew there were only a few days left until the communist forces would completely close the circle around the capital, and we knew that almost every day, without exception, so many lives had been lost. Searching for the solution for hours, we ran out of all options. There was no way to protect the Jewish population of Budapest 100% from the Nazi Aerocross terror. We could not use firearms openly and start a war between Hungarians. We could not order a larger unit of Nazis to leave the ghetto when we were outnumbered. There was no more diplomatic channel open to negotiate to put a stop to the senseless killings. Although we got promises from the military, it still was not the best solution because by the time the dispatched military unit arrived on the scene, the killing was probably over. With this, I will draw to a close episode 11 of the audio podcast the Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. Editor's note, I would suspect only the strongest individuals have been able to listen to all these episodes as it gets worse and worse. Imagine episode 11 and all the killing in it covered only six days of 1944.